We all know the feeling of waiting for an exam, a test, and particularly its results. We've been assigned responsibility for a a certain set of information or, or skills, and we're supposed to measure up to assessment. It is that feeling of of waiting for the results of our assessment, however, that that pushes us to to strive for greatness in in our preparations for that exam. And as we look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul said the same sort of anticipation of an assessment of his work in ministry drove him to work hard at doing his best for the gospel. He he knew that he was secure in Christ as one saved for eternity, but he also knew that his work could still prove useless, unapproved. He didn't want that, but rather wanted his apostolic labors to have eternal fruit of, of, of bringing people into the gospel so that they shared eternal salvation with him in God's family. We, we know from our previous studies, if we can remember back that far, that earlier chapters in this letter addressed a crisis of authority in Corinth. So some had aligned themselves with various teachers like Peter or, or Apollos or Paul himself to improve their own cultural prestige. And Paul pushed back against that, that rhetoric was not preaching's substance, but the word of the cross was as it came in a forthright gospel presentation. Now, the congregation had had departed from Paul's authority, which had actually been the thing that laid the foundation of the gospel for figure, and they had left it for figures of authority with more cultural clout. And so as, as Paul progressed into other issues in, in later chapters, we need to remind ourselves that their dismissal of his apostolic authority was actually never that far out of sight. Aligning the ministry in Corinth with the apostolic gospel foundation, again, was one of Paul's chief concerns. Uh, and so one issue which they raised was that of whether they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. And after all, idols aren't real gods, but merely blocks of stone that can't really affect food. And Paul, Paul agreed that their point was theologically correct. But still, they needed to be ready to forego that right to eat, which they had on their theological argument, if if using that right was going to be an obstacle against other believers developing properly in their faith. Even when we have a right, we have to be ready to be self-sacrificial people if it means the betterment of our fellow brothers and sisters. And so then we come to our, our chapter 9, Whereas an example of how they should give up their rights for other believers, Paul explained how he had certain apostolic rights, primarily the right to have their financial support for his 
preaching, but he'd given up that right to avoid being an obstacle to their faith. And we can see then, in light of that, how this chapter actually serves two purposes at the same time in this letter. So so I'm trying to gather together the threads that we've considered over previous weeks to pull this chapter together into a holistic unit here. So first, Paul used his own example to defend that Christians should be sacrificial people when it comes to helping each other grow in faith. I mean, that's a profound point for us, isn't it? We should be ready to, to set aside things of indifference if it means helping other people grow and pers- grow in and pursue after Christ. If, if Paul, for example, had used his right for financial support, it may have suggested to them that he was in, in the pocket of some of the cultural patrons and, and so had special allegiance to them and, and maybe they could have even had special right to the gospel. But the gospel is free. And Paul wanted the right to boast in how he illustrated the gospel's freeness in preaching it for free. And so then we think about the second purpose for this chapter, which, which was reassert Paul's apostolic authority. He used his example of giving up apostolic rights, but just in case the readers had lost sight of that issue that was so important in early chapters, clearly he had the rights that he was giving up as an apostle. He had those rights because God commissioned him to found the Corinthian church. Paul was flexible about his practices across varying cultures because he focused on getting the gospel before people without hindrance. And that too is a thing for us to mark, isn't it? It's so easy to get distracted by the various things of life, even church life, and lose sight of of keeping our focus on the gospel itself. And now in in chapter 9's closing verses, Paul indicated that the ways we need to help other Christians don't happen by accident. Right? We've thought a lot about the need to help other Christians, but actually those things require effort and even discipline. If we think even about this issue of what meat was permissible to eat, it could be hard for them or anyone of any time and place to to buy the more expensive meat that wasn't sacrificed in a temple uh, just for the sake of someone else's conscience, or even harder, at least if these people were anything like me, to give up eating meat altogether like Paul said he would do in 8.13 if that were to help another Christian. The Christian life, though, requires that effort and discipline to walk together well. Paul wanted us to be sharers in the gospel. And Paul did not want his ministry to be useless just because he had gotten distracted by things like dietary scruples and wanted Christians to think the same way. And so the the main point then is that we need to be aware of what's essential and what's expendable 
so that we can pursue excellence. We must be aware of what is essential and what is expendable so that we can pursue excellence. So we're going to think about the need for effort, the clear innovation, and the call for excellence. So, so the need for effort. Right, so verse 24 in our text is, is the central metaphor of these verses. So, so keep this text in front and look at verse 24 with me. Do you, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, right, the, the metaphor is about, and this is so important, the metaphor is about ministry as a race. It's really easy. I mean, I've, as I've read about this text, it is so easy for people who give their whole day to thinking about this text to forget that these verses are about ministry. But that's really important. Because although Paul was describing a situation in which there could be victory and there could be loss, that race wasn't about being a Christian. It was about winning people to Christ. As in verse 23 where Paul stated that he gave up his rights for the gospel's sake so that he could see other people become sharers in the gospel with him. Paul's race was about growing the family of God and the prize as 8.11, if we can think all the way back to chapter 8, verse 11, says the prize is the brother or sister for whom Christ died. Paul's point in saying that only one wins the race, actually, it doesn't have an exact correspondence to the way evangelism works, right? Because there's not one victor in evangelism. Actually, we hope there are lots of people winning in evangelism. The the point clearly was, though, that we have to put that much effort into our labors as if we are trying to outstrip the other runners. He's just saying, work that to see other people come to faith and grow in faith. Right. In other words, we can put it this way. Seeing others join God's people doesn't happen by accident. And we know that, don't we? I've yet to, well, I know maybe one or two people, but very few, that evangelism just rolls out without concerted effort. We're supposed to run in our evangelistic efforts in such a way as if we need to get past a whole crowd of people. And that requires actually our our focused attention. As verse 25 tells us, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They, They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Right, athletes don't stumble into greatness and into victory. I, I remember photos from decades ago uh, of, of baseball players smoking cigarettes in the dugout in between going on to the field. I, that's just not really going to work anymore. 
there, there are too many people, too many other players who are too focused on being their absolute best, conditioning their bodies so well at the game that they will not be distracted by things like smoking that slows them down, especially right as they go onto the field. Now, just think though, these guys who are willing to give up all those things to focus on one task, if they're the best, They might get a metal cup at the end of the season if they are the most disciplined. Paul noted that athletes in in the Olympic and Isthmian Games that that he's drawing from here as a metaphor uh, ran for a crown made of plants. I mean, right, so, so the perishable wreath is essentially a hat literally made of celery. But, but man, they gave their all for it. And believers, do, do you see the supreme gap between a hat made of plants and winning lost people to Christ? while some devote every aspect of their lives to being disciplined to win silly trophies, what is our mindset about seeing others won to Christ and preserved in faith? Are are we put out that we might have to make effort to speak about the gospel? Are we agitated that having more people in a congregation means having more opinions to accommodate? And so we may have to give up more of what we want. Paul was clear that the Corinthians had to be ready to give up their right to eat specific kind of food if it was detrimental to someone else's conscience. And I suppose that makes us ask, What sort of effort is required of us? But I leave that to you to consider as we move on to think about the clear motivation. So we saw that verses 24 and 25 contain Paul's athletic metaphor about how ministry requires genuine effort. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul applied this need for discipline to his own uh, situation so that he could show that the reason he worked so hard was that he didn't want to have a useless ministry. So verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. And this verse is just about avoiding fruitless efforts. A runner chases the finish line, not in some meandering fashion without a goal. A boxer ideally lands his punches. But it's easy, isn't it? I mean, do you ever feel aimless and fruitless in life? Do you ever feel like like you're just pushing pushing, trying, and trying, and all your 
efforts come to, at best, not much, if not nothing. It's a really frustrating feeling, isn't it? I mean, maybe, maybe you're giving your all to excellence at work. Maybe, maybe you really want to show your boss that you're quality. Maybe you want to show your parents that you measure up to expectations, I mean, which remains an issue, doesn't it, whether you're young or less young? At the end of the day, actually all of this striving is is running aimlessly and, and shadow boxing if if we don't have the proper goals. As we will see, Paul disciplined himself to make sure his work was pleasing to the Lord. And if we don't have the same clear motivation to to please the Lord, then we will always be left unsatisfied in our endeavors. Because when we're honest, right, where else would we find satisfaction? Paul showed us how his clear motivation was to please the Lord in verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest somehow, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Right, now, we need to think about this verse for a minute. And i, I got to unpack a, a couple of issues. Because some people have taken this verse to be a warning that, it, that if we don't keep ourselves in good spiritual discipline, then maybe we'll be disqualified from salvation at the last day. Others have taken it to mean that even though God sovereignly preserves His elect, He will preserve us by making us persevere in the increase of discipline unto holiness. Now, I can see how it could be easy to to jump to this understanding because of the disqualified language here. But we need to remember that this chapter has not been about the loss of salvation, but the usefulness of Paul's ministry. That's what the chapter has been about. And we can show this in a few ways. But but it should be clear, for one, if, if you've read Paul's letters at all, that Paul never thought about his ministry as contributing to his salvation or maintaining it. Right? Because that would be the implication here, is that discipline in his ministry is what upheld his salvation. That's just not the way Paul thought. Remember, right, this is so crucial. Because we can get oriented on ourselves really easily. Remember that the prize here wasn't final salvation for ourselves, but reaching the lost. And preserving those with weak consciences. Your prize is not you. Your prize is your brothers and sisters. Now that, that word, disqualified, actually links back to the discussion of, of Paul's ministry in, in chapter 3. So remember that in his architectural metaphor there, Paul described God as, as the patron who had commissioned him as the wise architect over over building the divine temple, the, the church. 
And Paul's apostolic authority meant that the builders, in the metaphor, the the non-apostolic ministers, had to square their work with his foundation. Because he's the overseeing architect. But still, within that same metaphor about ministry, Paul knew that patrons, the one who commissioned and paid for the temple, had the final to approve or not approve of a temple once the building was done. And so, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work, each one's work, will become manifest For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, now that that word there, test, in 3.13, in, in Greek, is the same root word group as in, as disqualified in 9.27. So, so if we were reading as an original reader, Paul just linguistically linked chapter 9's discussion back into his hopes that his ministry will be approved on the last day. And we saw earlier in verse 3, right, that this is his defense against those who would examine me. So to tie this directly to how we should understand our passage, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's Work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. I just think that's exactly what he's after here. And, and further, we can push that a bit further. 9.27 says, after preaching, but, but actually after is not the emphatic point of the word here, since after is a bit of a translational interpretation on a Greek tense. So so rather than stressing a specific time frame for the task here, Paul was telling us what his test was. So, right, we could say in a different sense, after the test, I'm waiting my results. and, And we mean the results in that test. And Paul's waiting for approval, striving not to be unapproved in his preaching. And so we might render this verse, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest somehow in preaching to others, I myself should be unapproved. I worked a lot of this out on a train back from Edinburgh with Dr. Bittner, which was a lot of fun. But he makes some re- he made some really good points to me about Paul did not want his ministry to be useless. And what that tells us is we need to keep clear motivation. Paul kept clear motivation in pleasing God who had saved him by being faithful and undistracted in ministry. And it gives us a principle for our lives. We don't want to be distracted. We need a clear motivation in whatever we do, whatever task God gives you. We're fixed on pleasing God. And that brings us to our third point, the call for excellence. There 
is a really clear application here, I think, uh, to, to the way that we think about each other in our congregation. And that's where I want to take us. Paul was talking about receiving the reward of an imperishable wreath. But as we keep that whole discussion in view again, the imperishable wreath is not some worldly reward that happens to be given to you in heaven, but is actually having our brothers and sisters with us in the gospel for eternity. And that means the way that we treat one another is actually really important because the goal, the reward is not me and stuff for me the way we think about it here. The reward is me having you with me in the gospel. Are we then working to preserve one another's faith? We, we shouldn't be doing things that damage one another's consciences and, and pull others away from faithfulness to Jesus. So, are, I mean, do we do things like let each other continue in sin? Do we do things like gossip about one another behind our, each other's backs? We, we should be working to see each other thrive in holiness, and we should rebuke, help, and most often encourage one another in those endeavors. There is a real call for excellence in this passage for the life of the church. We can easily get distracted by all kinds of things, can't we? Are we running good programs? Programs that I like? Is someone else reaching out to others as well as I am? Do we sing songs that I like? Those issues may well all have their place. But are they where we focus our efforts? Are our preferences going to get in the way of being sharers in the gospel together. I mean, I, I, yeah. It's really clear that these verses call us to a deep, deep unity as the family of God. Because that is where the prize is. We are precisely the family of God if, if we are believers in Christ. We are people knit together in Christ's blood. We are sharers together in the gospel, woven together by the Holy Spirit for fellowship together that is, that is meant to push all of us closer to Christ. I really realize that none of us are perfect. And we will often fail one another. I certainly will disappoint and fail you and likely already have in innumerable ways. 
And I hope, though, that we will be a people who display the gospel in setting aside our failures and burdens to come together to renew ourselves in the good news of Jesus Christ and push one another towards him. Because after all, we're looking at the finish line with the motivation of pleading the Lord. But if, if we're not seeing that finish line where we're there together, then we're not thinking properly about the Christian life. We do have to do this together as sharers in the gospel. And when we get there, we will find our Savior with the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And yet we'll be there together. Let's pray. Father God, there are so many ways that we can think about success and excellence in this world, and most of them don't have to do with your scripture. And so we ask for help, that we can think clearly, that we can give our focus to the motivation which we should have, not perishable wreaths that this world constructs, or that our hearts even fabricate, but the imperishable wreath, eternal life together in heaven with our brothers and sisters, preserved in faith, coming to faith because we would share the gospel. Help us never to lose sight of that message of Jesus. Help us, God, to love one another well, It is so easy to be bad at that. And we cry out for help. We cry out for clarity that we would express and state, demonstrate our love for one another in ways that show the world, just like you said, they will know us by our love for one another. We pray that you would work that amongst us for your glory, for your fame among the nations that people would see what Jesus Christ does in the hearts of people who come to him. And we do pray this for his sake, for his glory, in his name. Amen.